Good evening, and welcome to Upbeat Live. I'm Veronica Krauss. Happy Thanksgiving weekend. Who had turkey? Who didn't? Who had a tofurkey? No? Okay. <laughs> Has nothing to do with the concert. Um, uh, tonight's concert is truly music that we can definitely be thankful for. It's all about passion. Some of it is a bit more boisterous and primitive, and some a little more civilized. So let's start with the civilized end of things. Um, from the end of the Romantic musical period, on the first half of the concert is Rachmaninoff's gorgeous second piano concerto. Sergei Rachmaninoff, he was a triple threat. He was a concert pianist, he was a conductor, and he was a composer. For him, it was, it was really quite a balancing act, um, one that was complicated by the Russian Revolution at the beginning of the 20th century that eventually drove him and his family into exile. Um, but he was born in 1873 into an old and musical Russian family that went back to the 15th century and the Grand Dukes of Moscow. And this legacy uh, ended with Rachmaninoff's father, who lost their family fortune and sort of abandoned his wife and children. Now, all the origin, uh, originally, all the children in his family were supposed to go to a military school. And, um, but Sergei, at nine, uh, was allowed to follow his musical inclinations and was enrolled in the St. Petersburg Conservatory. At first, he apparently spent more time in the skating rink than practicing, and he started faking his um, report cards. So his, um, his mother eventually found that out, and he was busted. Uh, so he was then put under the tutelage of the best piano teacher in Moscow at the conservatory there, who had a very rigid discipline, and he made sure that Rachmaninoff was up at 6, 6.30 in the morning every day, practicing all day. And it paid off because Rachmaninoff grew into a really serious student of music. He was even awarded the conservatory's gold medal, uh, great gold medal. After graduation, everything was looking really optimistic, and he was really eagerly awaiting the premiere of his first symphony. It should have been a huge triumph, but alas, it was not. The conductor, Alexander Glazunov, didn't seem to understand the music, and there was also a rumor that he was horribly drunk at the concert, which didn't help because it was an absolutely dreadful performance. And apparently during the performance, Rachmaninoff you know, escaped to the fire exit or the, outside the, the concert hall with, and had his fingers in his ears. Um, the, the piece was brutally panned by a Russian critic who likened it to a depiction of the ten plagues of Egypt, suggesting it would be admired by the inmate, inmates of a conser music conservatory in hell. <laughs> Not a very favorable review. Um, but, and after this, Rachmaninoff was really devastated, and he couldn't compose for several years. He actually never heard the symphony during his lifetime. Um, his family and friends tried to cheer him up, and they even introduced him to the great writer Tolstoy, who, whom um, Rachmaninoff really admired. And it, that kind of backfired, because the writer gave him this little lecture. Do you imagine that everything in life goes smoothly? All of us have difficult moments, but that is life. Totally didn't work. Um, 
Also, at the same time, he had been engaged to Natalia Satina, but her parents and the Orthodox Church were opposed to the marriage since she was his first cousin. Anyway, so that little obstacle also added to his depression. Finally, his family convinced him to see the doctor Nikolai Dahl. And he was not only a cellist, but he was a psychologist who was trained in hypnotherapy. So over the course of a few months, Rachmaninoff went to this doctor every day who repeated to him, you will begin to write your concerto, you will work with great facility, the concerto will be of excellent quality, and so forth. Well, it worked. And he began his second piano concerto, which he dedicated to Dr. Dahl. Other good news, after the, the really successful premiere of the concerto, he married Natalie. And since the Orthodox Church still didn't approve of this union, they had something like a military wedding or something through their connections, so they didn't have to get the church's approval. During the time that he was unable to compose, um, Rachmaninoff was offered a conducting position at a small opera company. Um, since he was really in need of money, he accepted. This, of course, led to good reviews of his conducting, and by his 40s, Rachmaninoff was touring internationally, not only as a composer and pianist, but as a conductor. While he had a position as conductor at the Bolshoi Theater, um, he kind of got tired of it after a while. And this was exacerbated by the 1905 revolution in Russia, which was making it really difficult to work. So he resigned, and he started touring and working around Europe, going back and forth to Russia every so often. But it was finally during the 1917 revolution that the Rachmaninoff home was taken over by a group of social revolutionary party members and they declared it communal property. So at this stage, um, he said enough. Um, he received a, a touring invitation from Scandinavia and took that as the opportunity to get his family out of, out of Russia. And he spent much of the next 20 years touring and composing in Europe. When the Second World War was on the verge, uh, starting in around 1939, this, at this point he went, okay, off to, to the U.S. we go. And he settled in Beverly Hills in 1942 and took his citizenship the following year, just one month before he died. He had an amazing work ethic. He worked up until a month before his death, um, and he died of cancer just before his 70th birthday in Los Angeles. After Rachmaninoff moved to L.A., he met some of his neighbors. Um, Horowitz was, was close by, and he would often come over and they'd do piano duos. Uh, another was Charlie Chaplin. And one day they got into a discussion about religion. Um, Ch Chaplin announced he was an unbeliever. And Rachmaninoff wasn't particularly much of a church-goer either, you know, having ignored the Orthodox Church about his marriage situation. But so he, he, he said to Chaplin, how can you have art without religion? And Chaplin said, I don't think we're talking about the same thing. Art is more a feeling rather than a belief. And Rachmaninoff replied, so is religion. So that was an interesting um, point of view. Rachmaninoff composed five works for solo, piano, and orchestra, four concertos, and then um, the fifth is a rhapsody on the theme of Paganini. And by far, the second and the third concertos are the most popular. 
he wasn't so much, uh, he was Russian, but he wasn't so much a Russian nationalist composer using folk tunes and whatnot, uh, as, we, as we'll see Stravinsky did. But he, he followed more in the footsteps of Tchaikovsky, who was a more, who had more of an international, sort of European compositional style. He's known for his sweeping lyrical melodies and rich harmonies and his crazy piano technique. And just, it, it's so virtuosic and the piano parts are just crazy wonderful. And um, it may not surprise you that Rachmaninoff actually really liked fast cars. And he even got a few speeding tickets in LA apparently. But this is definitely a situation where life, speeding, imitated his art and playing. He was a really tall man, and often uh, reviews of or comments on his tallness were given by very short people. So they said he was a giant, but in fact he was just over six foot, but had huge hands. Um, any pianists in the audience here who's tried to play Rachmaninoff? Well, yeah. So the, the range of, of his hands was so great that as pianists, those huge chords, especially in the left hand, are almost impossible for anyone to take in one go. So we, you know, we all roll them, you know, or we did, I did when I was actually playing, but, you know, and, but his hands were so huge he could manage these enormous reaches just um, easily, easily. Now, in addition to recording his own his own music and other concert works, he made something like 35 piano rolls um, for a pi player piano roll company. And um, 12 of those rolls were his own compositions. And according to the player piano roll company's publicity at the time, um, they said that at first Rachmaninoff didn't believe that a roll of punched paper could provide an accurate record. So he was invited to listen to a proof copy of the first recording. And after the performance, he was quoted as saying, gentlemen, I, Sergei Rachmaninoff, have just heard myself play. So I guess that meant it passed. But um, it, he continued to record until around 1929, and I think the last role he made was Chopin's Scherzo in B-flat minor. Not, not an easy piece. Anyway, I've had the opportunity to hear um, Rachmaninoff's piano role of his you know, very famous prelude in C-sharp minor. And I have to tell you, it, it, it's a little bit creepy, thinking it's almost as if it's the ghost of Rachmaninoff actually playing the keys. So on tonight's concert, his second piano concerto, it's in a traditional concerto form. It has three movements. And the first movement opens up with these really wonderful eight ominous chords um, that then introduce the first theme. I just have to do a little digression here. Um, in my family, um, 
where I grew up, uh, it was my father who got told off for ho having the stereo too loud. When everyone went out of the house, he'd put on Beethoven or Rachmaninoff second piano concerto at 11. And the neighbors, when we came home, would say, oh, we can hear that music again. You know, and it wasn't the teenagers, it was, it was my dad who was, who, who was playing this on the stereo. Um, so this beautiful first movement, uh, first theme in the first movement is contrasted somewhat by a more lyrical but still melancholy second theme. When I was an undergraduate composition student in Toronto, I went through a phase where anything that was not modern, I, I, I considered it not acceptable. So I sneered at anything classical or anything romantic, but I was secretly still a lover of Rachmaninoff's music, but I wouldn't say it out loud. Um, anyway, his, his melodies are so darn gorgeous, and you know, how can you, how can you resist? And apparently, I'm not alone in my admiration, Many ad, an artist has admired even closer by borrowing some of Rachmaninoff's melodies. Here's one example you might recognize, so name that tune. Okay, who's that? No, everyone's nodding, they know it. Eric Carmen uh, from 1975, all by myself, of course. So it, here's, uh, he, he pinched the, the theme from the second movement. Here it is in Rachmaninoff's concerto. things that first comes to mind is how did it get away with plagiarizing the melody uh, of this famous concerto? Well, at the time, Rachmaninoff's music was in public domain in the U.S. Um, and Carmen didn't realize that it was still protected outside the U.S. by copyright. So when he released the album, he got a little call from Rachmaninoff's estate. And um, they reached an agreement in the estate that he would, that they, the, the estate would received 12% of any royalties from his song, as well as from another song he had, which was called Never Gonna Fall In Love Again, which was based on Rachmaninoff's se uh, second symphony. Anyway. Now, the third movement and final movement starts fast, and then it moves into a very nostalgic theme which brought Rachmaninoff worldwide fame. It starts in the oboes, the oboe and the vi violas, and then it's eventually taken up by the piano.
And uh, yeah, definitely a, a great melody writer. Even one of the most, uh, or the, the best musical artists of the 20th century pinched one of his melodies. So this tune, I'm sure you'll be able to name who the, the performer is. Who's that? Yeah, Frank Sinatra. There we go. Okay. So, Frank Sinatra's Full Moon and Empty Arms. Again, pilfered from the second theme in this movement. first heard the Frank Sinatra song and then heard the Rachmaninoff, if the, t the words stay in your head when you listen to that, you know, it's sort of a backwards sort of association. Anyway, the pianist uh, this evening, the soloist, is the fabulous um, Seon Jin Chow. And Cho, sorry, excuse me, Cho. And he was brought to the world's attention in 2015 when he won the coveted uh, gold medal at the Chopin International Competition in Warsaw. And then in 2016, he signed an exclusive contract with Deutsche Grammophon. And uh, he's all of 25. He was born in, in Seoul, Korea in 1994. He started learning piano at the age of six, gave his first piano recital at 11, and by the time he was 17, he won the third prize at the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow. So no slouch, just amazing technique. So he's going to totally blast through this concerto tonight. Um, the conductor is, of course, LA Phil's own music director, Gustavo Dudamel. And he and the next composer on the program have, both have something in common. They both have stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I'm sure there are other things in common, but that, that's sort of an unusual one. So uh, Stravinsky's is at 6340 and Hollywood Boulevard, and Dudamel's is at 6752 in front of the Musicians Institute. So Igor Stravinsky, another Russian. Uh, he was born in St. Petersburg, Russia, around 1882, or in 1882, about 10 years after um, Rachmaninoff, so slightly different, not quite the same age, but a little bit of a difference in generation there. He also was born into a large family, except his family was very musical. His father was a singer at the theater, so the house was always filled with musicians and writers and artists. And even so, he was expected to study law, and he even enrolled, but apparently only went to 55 classes out of four years of study. <laughs> These guys are not good students until they want to be. Um, and he, he was actually spending more time um, on his musical studies at that point. Um, so at, at the age of 20, he decided, um, or he went to Rimsky-Korsakov, who's another very famous old school Russian composer. And it was decided at 20, he's too old to enroll in the conservatory. So Rimsky took him under his wing and gave him private lessons. Um, 
1905, the Bloody Sunday event prevented final exams. And so at that point, he only graduated with half a degree or something like that, so he went, forget it. I'm just going to go into music full, full on. One day, the young Stravinsky took a new composition to Rimsky-Korsakov, who said, this is disgusting. It is not permitted to write such nonsense until one is 60. <laughs> I think he was fond of him. Anyway, um, Stravinsky was apparently always short on money when he was young, and at parties, girls would ask him to play, you know, this song, which he would do for a kopeck. And, and sometimes he'd indulge them if he played really well, or sometimes if he'd play a second song, they'd have to give him two kopecks. So that's how he would get his money from these unsuspecting partygoers. Like Rachmaninoff, Stravinsky also married his cousin. I don't know what it is with these composers. But, um, and this was also disapproved of by the church. Unfortunately, um, she, she had health problems throughout her life and died quite young. And after that, he married his long-time uh, long mistress, Vera de Bosset, in 1940. Vera was the former wife of the great Russian painter Sergei Sudeikin. And it's possible that she wasn't quite divorced in Europe by the time she ended up marrying Stravinsky. But I don't think that they mentioned that. But at any rate, Vera was his second wife. Um, they both became American citizens, and um, to celebrate this, Stravin uh, Stravinsky decided to do an arrangement of the Star-Spangled Banner, which is great, but he didn't realize it was an offense, and he got arrested in 1940 for doing that. <laughs> yeah. He died in um, New York in 1971, and he is buried in Venice, close to his longtime collaborator and friend, Diaghilev. So through the artistic circles in St. Petersburg, Stravinsky met this great Russian empresario, Sergei Diaghilev. And Diaghilev um, had, uh, his company was Les Ballets Russes, very famous, performed in Paris. And he, Diaghilev heard two short orchestral works by Stravinsky and was so impressed, he commissioned him there on the spot to write a full-length opera called The Firebird. And this was, Ballet Russe performed this in Paris. It was such a success that they went on to create many, many more pieces. The second was um, Petrushka, about a, a Russian, puppet, Russian puppets. And then the third was The Rite of Spring, which is on the concert this evening. The Rite was premiered in Paris in 1913. And of course, um, whenever you say the premiere of The Rite of Spring in Paris, you're, it's always mentioned that there was a huge riot. And rioting at concerts and performances in Paris was sort of the norm, but Rite of Spring was really quite extravagant in its um, excesses. Um, there's a really wonderful documentary I, I highly recommend. It's called Once at a Border by Tony Palmer, and it sort of traces Stravinsky from birth until his death and through all of his stylistic periods. And um, they've got a lot of original footage of Stravinsky, some of his colleagues and friends. There's even um, footage of him in, in Switzerland when he's very old with the writer Nabokov, you know, drinking vodka or scotch or something. And in this documentary, one of the prima ballerinas from the right of spring in 1913 was interviewed much later in life. And she's, she's a very elegant elderly woman. And she talked about their performance in Paris in 1913. She said, the dancers in the company 
didn't understand the music because it was so complicated. They, they didn't like the choreography because it, it was, um, you know, baller, ballerinas want to show off their graceful limbs and be on point and how beautiful and elegant they are. And the choreography was completely opposite to that, you know. Um, uh, Nijinsky had them stomping and, and not being on point and not looking elegant. But then she added, we didn't realize at the time that we were making history, which is a, a wonderful statement for, you know, for her to make. Um, she said that they were all disheartened by the actual performance, the premiere, at the audience's hostilities. Um, but they kept dancing, the orchestra kept playing. You know, during the performance, you know, the, they were fighting and, and people eventually got, you know, kicked out of the hall. But you know, someone at one point yelled out, a doctor, I need a doctor, if, because of the music. And then someone else yelled out, oh, a dentist, you know, this, it's, it's, you know. Anyway, um, so here the choreographer, Nijinsky, standing in the wings backstage on a chair. Stravinsky's got his coattails, so, you know, Nijinsky doesn't topple over. And, and, and Nijinsky's yelling beats and the steps to the dancers on stage because they, they were getting lost in, with the complicated rhythms. Anyways, after the performance, he basically said, stupid public. <laughs> yeah. So now, the layout of a typical ballet in the 19th century um, presented a story conveyed in, in passages, that some of them were in mime, and they usually had stock gestures and movements to tell the stories. And these were interspersed with dance numbers sort of that were comparable to, uh, comparable to arias in opera. And um, some involved the entire company, the corps de ballet, or smaller groups like duos or soloists and things like that. In the early 19th century, uh, visiting French dancers and choreographers established that kind of style of dancing in St. Petersburg, so very, very Western um, ideal on, on the dancing. And Tchaikovsky's ballet, Sleeping Beauty, and you know, all those sugar plum fairies and the Nutcracker, uh, grew out of, out of that period. And these ballets were quite long. One ballet would be an entire evening's program. The music typically only had a loose connection to the story and usually just provided a, a backdrop to the dancing until Tchaikovsky's music, where the ballet music was generally written by some, at, where it was much more integrated. Now, Diaghilev's ballets for the Les Ballets Russes were entirely different and completely revolutionary. His ballets were short, and several were needed to fill an evening's entertainment. He also commissioned um, famous classical works and um, also commissioned or new original scores. Diaghilev worked with the, initially with the choreographer Fokin, who wanted ballet to be a total work of art. He insisted and strove that all aspects of the ballet be integrated into a unified dramatic image. So it's scenario, it's mime, it's dancing, it's lighting, it's costume, stage design and music. So clearly Wagner um, was, a, was a model for these ideals um, who had done this just in traditional opera just 50 years previous or beforehand. So everything the audience was seeing in the Rite of Spring was opposite to what they were used to. Um, Richard Taruskin, who's, one, who's a huge Stravinsky expert, he suggested that more shocking than the music was perhaps the non-traditional choreography that really um, sort of incited the audience to riot. This, um, the Rite of Spring, or Le Sacre de Printemps, 
has the subtitle Scenes of Pagan Russia. It's a musical choreographical work that's depicting pagan Russian, a pagan Russian ritual um, for the coming of spring. Basically, it's the sacrifice of a young virgin to ensure the harvest. Yeah. But it doesn't have so much a plot as more of a, a succession of, of scenes. And it was a joint collaboration between the artist and mystic Nicholas Roerich and Stravinsky. They both concocted the scenario and the costumes and set were realized by Roerich. Stravinsky dedicated the score to him. Roerich was one of the artists in Diaghilev's circle um, that was part of the sort of the Russian avant-garde who were really interested in the, expressing the Russian ideals of music and art. And um, they were also interested in the primitivist sort of style of painting that Diaghilev had seen in Paris that he had brought back with him. So the Rite of Spring really is both Russian and very primitive. There are two main sections to the, to the piece. There's the adoration of the earth, and then there's the sacrifice. In his early music, Stravinsky freely used both authentic and made-up melodies, or folk melodies and dances. And then, although these were really popular, extremely popular abroad, in Russia, he was sometimes criticized for his use of folk material that was considered too simplistic and in an attempt to, you know, pass it off as serious music. I remember one of my professors once said it was almost as if someone tried to write a symphony based on Happy Birthday. You know, it's so well known for us that we think, well, pick something better. But if you don't know the piece, it's, it's you know, it's fascinating musical material. In the Rite of Spring, Stravinsky uses many folk melodies. Um, again, some of his own invention, and some uh, are from an anthology of folk melodies by a Polish slash maybe Lithuanian priest, Yukiewicz, uh, that contains over 1,700 songs. Since the, the Rite was about a primitive ritual, Stravinsky's advisor on Russian folklore and prehistory suggested for him to look at Lithuanian folk tunes, because um, Lithuania was actually the last nation in Europe to move from paganism to Catholicism. Um, and I think that was in the 14th century, so much later than most other European countries. So the reason might have been that Lithuanian music, you know, folk music might be a little more authentically primitive for his purposes. Now, Stravinsky acknowledges that the opening melody in the right is a Lithuanian folk tune. But he claims that he had his ear, that only his ear to help him for the rest of the work, and that he was the vessel through which the sacre passed. It's not quite true. Um, many of the tunes in the rite have actually been found in that anthology. So here's Melody 157 from the anthology. Wrong note. Okay. Sound familiar? Aha. So he used this melody as the opening for the entire work. And you'll hear it in the bassoons. 
And the interesting thing about this is the bassoons are in such a high register that no one ever writes for them up there that they almost don't sound like a bassoon. Stravinsky referred to this opening as a swarm of spring pipes or flutes. So you have this beautiful bassoon melody coming in. Um, that introduces the first part of the Rite of Spring. So this first part basically is, starts in the hills. There are these pipers piping, and young men and women are you know, getting into spring shenanigans. And there's dancing and games. And then the old men bless the earth. So after these pipers, an old woman enters, and she begins to tell the future in the augurs of spring. And this section has that wonderfully infamous dissonant chord that gets repeated over and over with really different rhythms. So usually when we think of dance music, we think of something that's really metrically clear. So if you were going to do a waltz or a minuet, which we all do, I know, in the privacy of our own home, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. You know, it's clear, or a march, one, two, one, two. So it, it, there's no ambiguity of where, where the beat falls. So um, this ballet, perhaps matching the primitive idea, uh, is not in a regular rhythm or meter. And of course, that makes it terribly exciting, but this is what caused the dancers at the premiere so much trouble where Diaghilev, um, um, Nijinsky was backstage counting for them where the main accents were. So here, here's that uh, great chord. While this is happening, you also heard a few other melodies there. And in the midst of that, you will get another, um, you'll get another folk melody that you'll hear in the bassoons. So here's number 787 from that anthology. Sounds very folkish. Here it is in, uh, during the, the chords. There are many, many examples. I'm just picking a few to show you. So next on the agenda is the young girls are marched in, and it's the ritual of the abduction. Scary title. The young men sees the girls in some kind of sexual rite. And understanding the story makes it a little bit terrifying when you hear it, because there's this sort of musical hunt idea with brass calling and uh, the timpani pounding away.
this leads into a slower but still intense spring rounds, uh, where the young girls dance and, and sing in a, in a circle dance. So here is yet another example of a borrowed Lithuanian folk melody. Um, it's number 157. And it, ironically, it's about uh, a young uh, a brother who is telling his sister, don't marry the serf because he won't make you happy. Marry the forester who can provide for you. Okay. So there's that folk tune. Warning, marry for money, I guess that's essentially what it's saying. So here is that um, in, in the actual piece. Then you have the rival tribes playing games, and it starts with, <laughs> I love this section, all of a sudden you get tubas and the Wagner tubas just blasting away. It's really fun. So the, the games that they're playing are interrupted when all the, there's a procession of holy um, elders and it's headed by a sage whose appearance pauses the games. You actually get a, a little bit of a hiatus from all the, the rhythms. And he blesses the earth and then the people break out into a dance celebrating the earth and become one with the earth. So that's the end of the first half. Second half is the sacrifice. And it's darker and it has secret night games of the maidens that leads to the choice of one of them um, for sacrifice and her eventual dance to the death in front of the sages. Um, the honored, the girl who's chosen, or who's honored is called the chosen one. And um, after the evocation of the ancestors, uh, she does her dance where she, as I said, dances herself to death. And in this movement, it's interesting because there are moments where you'll have sort of dramatic pauses that don't stop the action, but just it, it actually builds the tension, especially when you've got these like stabbing brassy interjections. Sorry, I just went one too far. Like a horror movie, you know, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> anyway, um, by the way, the recording I was using was Stravinsky conducting um, many years ago. So the right is more than 100 years, years old and still sounds fresh and exciting. And I love the quote by Duke Ellington from 1970, where he said, 
New music? Hell, there's been no new music since Stravinsky. <laughs> um, you know, both Stravinsky and Rachmaninoff were from Russia. They both married their cousins. They both wrought, wrote awesome music. They both recorded their works on piano rolls. And both had the same problem with European copyrights not being recognized, which meant they lost, a lot out, lost out a lot on royalties. And uh, I love the story of um, these two Russian composers who were at the same party in LA. And apparently they weren't that friendly, but somehow they were both invited to this Hollywood dinner party because their wives were friends, you know, the Russian connection and all that. So after a few drinks, Rachmaninoff started to mock Stravinsky's financial problems because he had never earned any royalties from Rite of Spring and all of these amazing works. And then Stravinsky countered, well, Rachmaninoff, you haven't earned any royalties from your piano concertos or your famous prelude in C-sharp minor for exactly the same reason. And just when everyone thought fisticuffs were going to ensue, they sat down amicably, probably with something to drink, I'm guessing, and they began to calculate what their fortunes would be if there had been um, a royalty agreement between the US and Europe. Anyway. So I hope you enjoy the civilized and the barbarous this evening in the concert. Thanks. <laughs>